You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, last month, we introduced our theme uh, to, to the year 2024. And so if you've been coming, you, you already know what we've been doing. We've been, we've been discussing the fact that it's all about Jesus We've been singing about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and, and preferably at, a, at another level even. And so what we, what we want to do this morning is be reminded as we continue through this, these series of messages this year that it's all about Jesus. And that Colossians 3.17, our theme verse, that whatever you do in word or in deed, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so if it's all about Jesus, then he is our model. He is our example. But secondly, as we enter into this new series of messages that will take us all the way through Easter Sunday, the last day of March, there's 57 days until Easter. And so as we begin this journey together, I want to speak this morning on Jesus, our mediator. Jesus, our mediator. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible calls Jesus our mediator. Look at it with me. It says, for there is one God. And there is one mediator. And this mediator is between God and mankind. His name. The name of this mediator who is between God and mankind is the man, Christ Jesus. He is in the middle. Jesus is the mediator. He is the the middle man between us and God. The word mediator is is an interesting word. It carries, and pay close attention to this as as this will be important for us to understand throughout the entire series. But the word mediator carries the idea of someone who is a go-between. This person is a go-between for two arguing parties. And usually some sort of agreement is arrived at in order for reconciliation to become a reality. And so Jesus... Our mediator reconciled man to God. He was the only one who could mediate to bring about such a relationship. There was no other one that could do it. And so Jesus stepped in. But the mediation cost Jesus his life. His role as our mediator is linked to his death It is linked to his sacrificial death on the cross that reconciled us to God. This week, or as I was studying this this thought of mediation and and being a mediator, I called uh, one of our church family members, Ralph Ohm. He's the circuit court judge. And I said, Ralph, asked a dumb question. I said, "Have have you ever been in mediation? He said, thousands of times in my career have I participated in mediation. And I said, tell me about it, judge. 
And so he began for about 20 minutes. It's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating, really. If you ever have an audience with him, it, it would be worth your asking. Just he, he, he tells the entire process, and it's so interesting. But then he got to the final part of the process where he said, then the two parties are dismissed to go to private rooms. And there is a mediator who is in the middle. This person represents... In essence, both parties. And, and they are going back and forth between the two parties that are arguing about their case and what they think is best. And what he does is come up with the best solution to reconcile. So it doesn't have to go further. More money doesn't have to be spent. It doesn't go to court and, and, and further complicates things. And he said, you know, mediation is, it, it works quite well. And he said, in a mediation... One of the most important things for the mediator to do is to use the right words. In a mediation, the mediator uses his words. Judge said he uses his words so that both parties can agree on a reconciliation. And in the case of Jesus, our mediator, he also used words. These words are known as the seven statements from the cross. Someone else calls them the seven sayings of the cross. We're calling them for the next few weeks the seven cries from the cross. These cries, these statements, these sayings were statements of our mediator for you and for me. And for that reason, for the next eight weeks, seven sermons I'll be preaching on each saying. And then Brother Josh Clark, one of our, our, our pastors here, one of our college instructors here. Josh, would you raise your hand just for one moment? Great. Not, he's, he's somewhat new to the church, but, but quickly impacting our, our congregation. Josh is going to join me on the fourth Sunday of this series and focus specifically on that passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The last words of anyone can be very revealing. When someone says their last words, in my experience as a pastor, I have found families come close to the bed or to the place where that person is. They lean in, they want to hear, they want to hang on every word. They don't want to miss what they're going to say. My wife and I this morning were chatting a little bit back and forth about her, uh, her dad who Uh, passed away, such a great man, was a deacon here in our church, lived in LA, has a wonderful story of many years married to my mother-in-law here on the front row, Mrs. Yoshida, who is still with us, but he's been gone for, for many years. And we remember together, there were some words that he shared towards the end of his life that, and anybody that knows Mr. Yoshida, if you have experienced his friendship, you know that he was a, a a man uh, who, who spoke clearly and and very concisely about his faith in God. He had a wonderful testimony. And Carol Ann remembers specifically him saying to her at the end, sweetheart, I have been, God has been so good to me. I've lived such a good life with God and I'm ready to go home. How encouraging is that to her, his daughter, to hear those words And so oftentimes the last words of someone speaks about, exposes their mind, it exposes their heart. It seems like the last words are like an extra x-ray that reveal the inner man. Interestingly enough, the last words of P.T. Barnum, 
the founder of Barnum and Bailey Circus, said, So what are today's prophets? The last words of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, were, The best of all is God is with us. But hauntingly, the last words of Karl Marx, the founder of the communis, of communism, said, Come on! Get out! Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. But not true in the last words of Jesus. The last words of Jesus as he hung on the cross are precious words. Poignant words. Powerful words. There are seven statements of incomparable significance. And that's why I'm going to take the next seven sermons under this sermon series titled Jesus, Our Mediator, as we approach Easter. And we're going to listen and learn from the last words of Jesus, our mediator. In order to do that, I want us to begin by painting a picture. I just don't know how to enter into this sermon a more necessary way, but then to ask you to join me this morning as we paint a picture of what it must have been like to hear the very first words of the last words of Jesus. So would you join me for just a moment in the theater of your mind at the foot of the cross? Is it difficult to paint the picture, to be honest? We, we weren't there, and yet we were. But join me as we come to the foot of the cross of Christ and we go back 2,000 years and as we stand there on that old rugged hill in front of this old rugged cross outside the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem, Scripture specifically calls it the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary. I've stood there myself in 2020 with some of you. Notice, if you would, with me this morning as we try to picture this, the sky is boiling with fury. The winds are howling. The skies turn dark as if they were a thousand midnights. Hanging on the cross, there's a man. He's in the middle of two criminals. There's a sign, if you look closely, over his head that says, the king of the Jews. They've nailed him to this cross. If you look closely, you'll see that his hands and feet are quivering, writhing in pain. He's been spat upon. His body, it's naked. His body has been whipped by Roman officials They've lacerated his body to the point where he bleeds from his head and he bleeds from his hands and he bleeds from his feet and he's bleeding from his side. And then if you look down to the blood-soaked sands of Calvary, you'll see a woman. She's sobbing. And if it was your son, you would be sobbing too. And then, 
it looks like he's going to say something. I mean, how, how, how could he speak? I mean, he's in such pain, and crucifixion is such a cruel way to die. In fact, you, if, if you don't die from the cruel pain and suffering of the cross, you would suffocate because you're, it's hard to get air into your lungs. I mean, as I've read stories of crucifixions, I have found the only way you could speak is to somehow lift yourself up with all the strength you would have to get enough oxygen inside your lungs to even say anything. But it looks like he, he's trying to say something. As, as he lifts himself up and begins to open his mouth, a hush comes over the audience, and just like there is this morning, I can't do it justice, but I'll try. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The first word from the cross is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And interestingly, the first words that Jesus spoke to his disciples after he rose from the dead were the same thing. In John chapter number 20, beginning in verse 21, Jesus, if you remember, had walked through a wall. That's impressive. He, he walks through a wall. And I'm sure they were shocked. And then he says these words, peace, peace be with you. As the Father hath sent me, I also send you. After he says this, he breathes on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive. Can you imagine? You're in this room. You were also at the cross. You remember he said the words forgiveness. The very first thing that he said as he was suffering on that cross was, Father, forgive. The very first thing he said after he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples was, forgive. If you forgive. What is the significance of these words? For us today, what is the significance of the first of the last words of Jesus? Yes, they were tender words that Jesus said from the cross in compassion, no doubt. They're also words that are timely in the face of his enemies. But this morning for gospel light, 2,000 years after he said them, they're teaching words. There's absolutely nothing that Jesus has ever said. There's nothing that Jesus has ever done that there's not been behind what he said or what he did in word or in deed. That has not been for the benefit of you and I having an example from the one who was perfect. And that's why Jesus said, well, whatever I've done in word or deed, you need to do this in word and deed and do it in the name of Jesus because it's all about Jesus. Think about it. Jesus is teaching us how to handle the difficulties of life. 
As I was walking into the service this morning at 9 o'clock, I met Junior, one of our church members, married to Allison. And I said, Junior, how are you doing? How's your day been? It's like 8.30. He said he was holding his son, Tripp, and he said, well, one of us is having a good day. You could tell Tripp was not having that, the same kind of day. You know, if I walked up to you this morning, and I said to you, hey, Jerome, how are you doing? How's your day? Jerome's answer would be based on what's happened to him recently. More than likely, it might even be if it was 8.30 in the morning, what's happened since he's woke up. If it's later in the day, it might be, have something to do with his work day. And, and he would probably answer, if it was a good day, a smooth day, a, a, you know, a productive day, he would probably say, as I said, hey, Jerome, how was your day? He probably, well, it's been a good day, preacher. But, but let's say it, maybe you got a traffic ticket that day. Or, or maybe things weren't so well at home. Or maybe there was something that wasn't right at work. He might answer differently. I mean, based on what had happened, he might say then, well, I'm honestly, preacher, having a, having a tough day, bad day. I think all of us here would agree that Jesus was having a bad day. I mean, I don't know how I could get much worse than crucifixion. He's having a bad day. I would not classify what Jesus went through on the cross as a good day. He'd been betrayed. He'd been beaten. He'd been rejected. He was experiencing pain at a level that none of us could even imagine. He was lonely. He was having a bad day. Jesus knows what it's like to experience a bad day. And you do too. And I do too. In fact, Scripture says all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are to take up our cross. We need to understand that there will be suffering in the life of a Christian. I mean, that just comes with it. And what Jesus is teaching us here today, because we too will suffer, is to notice how he suffered. Notice how he handled a difficult time in his life. And what did he do with that? How did he handle that difficult time? And the last words of the Lord Jesus teach us how to handle the difficulties of life. As we walk through this series together, we're going to learn seven different difficult moments in life. And how we can handle those moments. On the cross, Jesus left us an example. And that example is one that you and I can follow. It'll help us to deal with the bad days. It'll help us to deal with someone who mistreats us. Someone who does us wrong. Someone who falsely accuses us. The last words are teaching words of a mediator. That help us to handle the difficulties of life. Times when you've been hurt. Times when others have needed help that you love. Times when your family is hurting. Times in life when you feel alone and abandoned. Times in life when your needs just aren't being met. Times in life when you want to quit. Times in life where you just can't go any further and you feel like just throw it in the towel what exactly does this first cry teach us about handling difficult times 
well, let's read the Bible together to set the scene. You know, I've been convicted lately about how I read the Bible. At the first of the year, I was challenged by one of my friends not to read the Bible through, just to read the Bible through. And I know you're thinking, Pastor, you're 58 years old. You've been saved for 45 years. Surely you're more spiritual than this. Can I tell you, he's still working on me. Amen. And what I've been doing this year since January 1 is reading the Bible differently. I'm not so much trying to read the Bible just to get through it. In fact, I have inside your worship guide a 40-day Bible reading guide that we can do together. If you wouldn't join me, 57 days until Easter, but there's 40 Monday through Friday days. And if you'll start tomorrow morning at Jesus and the last Passover and end with me at Jesus and his ascension, I can assure you we will be so ready for what's going to happen that Friday night at the Good Friday service. It's going to be an amazing night, and we will have walked through the last days of Jesus together. Simple. It's not hard to do, and it's just a tool that I wanted you to have to complement the series, Jesus, our mediator. So let's read together in Luke chapter 23 and unpack the text and extrapolate the truth. Verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus... Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So a third time he looks at the crowd and he says, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found no grounds for the death penalty. There's no reason to execute this man. Therefore, I'll have him whipped, and then I'll release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices, crucify him. And their voices won out. So Pilate decided, I'll give you what you want. I'll grant your demand. So they released the one they were asking for. The one they were asking for had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. So so here we are in the text. Imagine with me our mediator is being mocked and rejected. Who is he being mocked and rejected by? The people he loved. And then Pilate sends him away. Let's continue in the text, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized a man. His name was Simon. He was a Cyrenian. Come come here. He was coming in from the country. And they laid on him, uh, the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. By this time, a large crowd of people had followed him. And this crowd included mainly women. They were mourning for him. They were lamenting him. And in the next four passages, we see the compassion of Jesus on these women as he stops and addresses them. Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. 
for yourselves. It's okay. Weep for your children. Look, look, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the women without children, the wombs who never bore, the, the breast that never nursed. They'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they say these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In the next verses, they arrive at the place of execution. Calvary, Golgotha, 32. Two others, criminals. They were also led away to be executed with him. So when they arrived at the place called the skull. It's a place of death. These next four words, I don't know how you just read over them. It's so, I can't imagine not giving you and I the benefit right now of just focusing for just a few moments. We sang about the son of suffering. Would you just for a moment on these next four words They crucified him there. Along with the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. As the Son of God hung on that old rugged cross, he is suspended between heaven and earth, he's our mediator. He was able to forgive men's sins on earth, but now as he's suspended from earth into, in between heaven and earth, he is now bearing the sins of mankind. My sins were there. And he cries his first statement on the cross. Father, he cries, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. What do you do when you feel like getting revenge? What do you do when you feel like retaliating? What do we do when we feel like reviling? What do we do when we feel like cursing, railing against someone? Look what they've done to me. What do we do when we've been hurt by others? Jesus is in pain. He's being hurt. What did he do? Let's follow in his steps. Number one, lift your voice and pray to the Father. Look with me, if you would, at the very first word from in, the, in the text. Look at this word, then. Then, Jesus said, then, then. When is then? Then is a moment. Then is a moment in time. It, it's a, it, it, it happens to be that the then in this text is he's being crucified. He's been mocked. He's been spat upon. He's been whipped. He's been cursed. Then. At the worst possible moment, Then. Then he says, Father, forgive them, 
It's a prayer. And he doesn't pray for himself, but for his enemies. When we've been hurt and when we've been offended, we need to talk to the Father first. Father. Father, he says, he's a man of prayer. Jesus prayed from the cross. He began his ministry with prayer. So it's only fitting that he should end his ministry in prayer. His prayer is not self-centered. He doesn't cry out for pity. He doesn't curse his enemies. He doesn't plead for his release. He actually prays for the very ones who placed him on the cross and cried out for his execution. And notice who Jesus was praying for. If you look real closely at the verse, you'll notice three words that indicate who he was praying for. Them, they, and they. Who are those people? Who is the them and who is the they in the text? I would have to include Judas. Who betrayed him? No doubt we want to include the Jewish leaders who had falsely arrested him and spit on him and said lies about him. I believe he was praying for the crowd that was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He was praying for Pilate who found him innocent and yet Gave him up to be crucified. He was also praying for these soldiers who had whipped him and mocked him and cursed him and spit upon him and nailed him to the cross. Jesus was praying for all of these. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. But that's not all. The them and the they include The them and the day tie include you, Vince, Margaret, Tiff, Marlena, include you. We're in the story. Father, forgive Eric. Forgive him, God. Remember, he's upon the cross as our mediator. He's there because of our sins. And Jesus is pleading with the Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. The fact that he pled for them means that he had forgiven them. But don't you agree with me that in difficult times, it's hard to imagine how any of us could do this. I mean, it's just, it seems in difficult times we forget God. We forget to turn to God. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend. Kevin was actually with me when we had this conversation. And he leaned in and told us a story about his brother. His brother was a pastor of a large church. He and his wife had taken some time away. They were in Hawaii doing what people in Hawaii do, jump off cliffs into water, right? I mean... We've been there many times. All of my boys have jumped off these cliffs. There's, there's actually sites that you go to for the purpose of jumping into water. It's, it's beautiful. It's fun. His wife jumped first. It didn't go too well. 
She hit her head on one of the rocks on this particular jump as she slipped and she went under the water unconscious. He immediately reacted as any man would for his wife. He jumps into the water and he rescues her, brings her out of the water. She goes to the hospital. There's a long time of recovery, but she comes out of it. Two years after that accident. Well, let me go back here. He preaches the funeral. After he preaches the funeral in his church, he closes his Bible, walks off the platform, resigns from the church, and walks away from God. Totally rejects God. Two years later, he commits suicide in the very spot that his wife and he had jumped from in Hawaii. Left letters and videos, basically, where's God? There is no God. He forgets a pastor of a large church. You say, Pastor, that's, that, that's so sad. Sometimes we do the same thing. Maybe the story is not nearly as dramatic, but we forget God. When we go through difficult times, sometimes we too forget to remember that God is there. He's never left us. He's never forsaken us. And while others are crying and cursing at the cross, Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. Jesus is practicing what he preached in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 when he said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for them who persecute you. I love what the King James translators say. Love your enemies. Bless them who curse you. Do good to them who hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So what do you do when others have hurt you? Well, let's follow Jesus. It's all about him, right? Let's pray to the Father. Number two. The second thing we see here is we should look at the Bible pattern to follow. There's a pattern here we can follow as we learn to react to others when we've been hurt by them. And I want you to see it here in just a moment. Because what I've seen as a pastor so often is that when someone is hurt, they build walls. We we just want to get away. We want to Take ourselves away from people, away from church sometimes, away from situations. And, and then finally somebody breaks through that wall. And when they do, when they finally get through to us and break past all of our defenses and, 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 and hurt us or, or get to us, we then lash out. How could you do this? You're a fool. But Jesus gave, an example, gave us an example to follow. Look at 1 Peter 2.21. He says, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you. You were called to this. You're going to go through hard times. You're going to have bad days. You're going to go through difficult seasons. But I've left you an example. I've suffered for you so that you could see how you can follow in my steps. Stephen did. In Acts 7 verse 59, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit When did he cry that out? When they were stoning him. And he kneels down and cries out with a loud voice while the stones are hitting his body. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Forgive them. And then he falls asleep. Paul practiced this. 
In 2 Timothy 4, 16, he said, At my first offense, no one stood by me. Everybody deserted me. Rotten bums, they ought to be. No, no, wait, wait. That's not how the verse ends. May it not be counted against them. Forgive them. If Stephen did, and if Paul did, so can we. Jesus, our mediator, gives this reason for his plea. And this is the hardest part of the sermon for me to understand and for you to understand. And I'm not going to do it justice, but I'm going to try. Because he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a tough one. Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. Really? Really? This is one that's so misunderstood. How could they not know what they were doing? Were they sleepwalking? I mean, were were they all on drugs? I mean, what's happened? Surely they knew what they were doing. I I get it. Yeah, they, they did know what they were doing. I mean, they were conscious of the fact that they were crucifying Jesus and rejecting him. When Jesus prayed this prayer, he was not praying a blanket prayer over everyone to say, hey, guess what? You're automatically forgiven. Does it matter? You're okay. It's okay. You can keep doing this. You're just going to be forgiven every time. You're automatically forgiven. No, no. Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them if they ask that they don't know what they're doing because they don't know who I am, that they don't know what I have done for them. And we find it difficult to believe what Jesus said when he said, because they do not know what they're doing. But truthfully, think with me for just a moment. His words describe all of human sin. Because even when we sin and we calculate that sin and we execute that sin precisely, no one really knows the depths of the destructiveness of their sin. No one really knows the degree of sin's devastating damage to people. No one knows that. I mean, when we sin, we don't stop to think, oh, this is going to bring forth death. Oh, this is going to ruin my family by watching this porn. I mean, nobody knows. It's not a big deal. It's not going to really have an effect. We don't don't consider the end. We don't think about the damage this is going to do. We think they know exactly what they were doing. And I'm sure to the observers at the cross, that's probably what they thought too. But Jesus knew when he said, Father, forgive them, that they were blinded by sin. They were blinded by Satan. And they were ignorant of who he was and what he actually came to do. Do you think that if Adam fully understood what he was doing and the effect of his decision on mankind, that he would have eaten that fruit? You think if Adam really knew? They didn't fully understand what they were doing. And in his mercy, he offers forgiveness. Someone has said that ignorance is no excuse for sin, but it makes it forgivable. In fact, Scripture teaches in 1 Timothy 4.16... Or actually, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.13. That even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. Aren't you thankful today that God doesn't always judge immediately? Amen. Aren't you grateful today for God's mercy, for his loving kindness? In his mercy, oftentimes God postpones judgment because... His son prayed, Father, forgive them. 
Father, help them to realize, give them time to realize and repent of their sin. He's saying, Father, forgive them and condemn me. Father, let them go. Kill me. I want to be the substitute for them, Father. Don't pronounce judgment on them. Lord, I'll take their judgment. Forgive them, God. Give them a chance to repent. Give them a chance to understand and to know why I came. Why I love them. What do you do when others have hurt you? Lift your voice and pray to the Father. Look at the Bible pattern to follow. And finally, learn. Learn to find the power in forgiveness. Can I say something to everyone under the sound of my voice? And this is so important. There is incredible power in forgiveness. I mean, it's, it's, it's unexplainable. It's so incredible that the testimony of someone who has experienced this freedom from justice and revenge, from the desire to want justice, from the desire to want revenge. But yet so many Christians live in bitterness and resentment. And forgiveness is the one thing in life that helps us to move forward. I've seen this so often times as people are harboring hate and bitterness and anger and wrath and malice in their hearts and they can't seem to get past it. They can't seem to move forward. It's just there and it begins to stink and it begins to harden their hearts and, and they just can't seem to move forward in their lives because they continue to have this unforgiveness, this bitterness. We need to experience the freedom of forgiveness together. And Jesus gives us the greatest example of forgiveness. He does. True forgiveness will spring from a gratitude to God for forgiving me. This is where forgiveness begins when I begin to realize I've been forgiven. That's why scripture says, and before we put Ephesians 4.32, let's talk about Ephesians 4.31, where scripture says to put away all bitterness, put away all anger, put away all wrath, put away all malice, put it away. Let it not be among you. Rather, here it is, be kind to one another. Forgive one another. How do I do that? Here it is, just as God also forgave you in Christ. That's the answer. True forgiveness comes from my remembrance of what God has forgiven me from. I've been forgiven so great a debt that I have freely received forgiveness. And so guess what? I want to freely give forgiveness. That's how it works. It starts with remembering, with having gratitude for the forgiveness that you've received And yet some have such a hard time forgiving others because they've not ever really fully received God's forgiveness to them. My wife and I talk about this often as we counsel and help people through being hurt by others. It seems as if oftentimes the true seed of that unforgiveness is that they've never really fully accepted God's forgiveness for them. And God did not wire us to live with guilt. He didn't do that. That's from Satan. If you are still burdened by guilt, I've got some really good news for you. You don't need to live that way anymore. Don't bury your sin anymore. Don't hide your sin. Don't deny your sin. Don't blame others for your sin. Take a responsibility. Be truthful about it. Just be honest. 
And don't beat yourself up. Remember that Jesus was nailed to a cross so that you would not have to be nailed to a cross. So in order to forgive others as God has forgiven you, what do you do? you got to admit your sin. Just admit it. Just be honest about it. I want you to know as your pastor, I'm a sinner. And apart from the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the penalty that Jesus paid for my sin, I'm, I'm, I'm destined for hell. I've got no hope. There's nothing that I can do. There's no works of righteousness that I can do to earn heaven. There's nothing I can do to earn his love, to earn his gift, to earn his grace. It's free. I admit I'm a sinner. Secondly, accept responsibility for your sin. I think this is one that we oftentimes struggle with. It just Coming to the place where we admit it and then accept responsibility. It's not anyone else's fault. I'm not going to point fingers or blame my past or blame the situation. I'm going to accept responsibility. Every man must give an account of himself. And then finally, ask and accept God's forgiveness. Just ask and accept. Has there been a moment where you have fully received the forgiveness of God? Where you have taken upon yourself the blood that's been applied at the cross for your sins, have you fully received that forgiveness? Because 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. How many? All. Everyone. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a God who is ready to forgive. He's able to forgive. He's already forgiven. We must accept him. And if you are here this morning and you would say, I don't know that there's ever been a time where I fully received forgiveness and grace from him. I don't know that there's been that time where I have trusted Christ as my savior. Oh, this morning, what a way to start this series. This is the day of forgiveness. Accept his forgiveness. And if you need to forgive someone, pray to the Father. Follow the example. And learn to find the power in forgiveness. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning for just a moment. So maybe the question is this. Do you know what it's like to experience a bad day? Have you ever been through it? Have you ever been mistreated? If you have, then Jesus this morning gives us an example to follow. Perhaps today you're still waiting to be forgiven. Perhaps you've believed in God all of your life. But you've never really come to the place where you've just received his love. You believe in him but you've never received his forgiveness. You've never really taken the grace that's been offered, freely offered. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's a relationship. It's not about religion. This service this morning has not been about being a Baptist. Hasn't even been mentioned. It's not the denomination. It's not religion. You can be Catholic or Protestant, Jewish, Baptist, Buddhist, Mormon, Hindu. That's not what this is about. 
We're not talking about religion. Religion is man's attempt to get to God. But Jesus Christ is God's attempt to get to man. He's our mediator. Jesus said, I don't religion. I don't want religion. I didn't come to give you religion. I came to give you life. I am your mediator. Today, if you've never accepted his forgiveness, I invite you this morning before you leave, whether it's at the altar in response to the music or whether it's after the service, you just kind of finding me or one of our staff to say, could we talk about this matter of forgiveness? I'd like, I'd like to receive, fully receive forgiveness from God this morning and his gift of grace. I can assure you, we would love to spend a moment with you on that decision. And that's what this response is all about. Where are you at? And what is the Holy Spirit dealing with you about? If it's salvation, if it's forgiveness of your sins, don't hesitate to find me either at the altar or somewhere. If it's forgiving others, respond that way. If you need to come to the altar, we are here and this altar is open. If you decide to pray in your seat or just even after the service, however you are led, but we encourage you to respond in worship to what you've received from the word. Father, we thank you today for all that you've done for us and for how you are working in our midst and for what you are doing today in our lives. Lord, this first cry from the cross is so powerful. Lord, you you forgave us that day. You bore our sin and the weight of the sin of mankind on your shoulders. And today and every day, you have offered it as a free gift. And so, Father, I pray today that if someone is here and they've never truly received that gift and experienced the freedom that comes by being forgiven and by forgiving, Father, I pray today would be a day of victory for those people. And God, I also pray for all of us today that, Lord, we would take what we've experienced together in this past hour and, Lord, allow it to to bring us closer to being like you, Father. That's our goal this year. It's all about Jesus. It's all about you. And so, God, I pray that we would attempt, Lord, with your help and with your leadership and with your love and grace and kindness to take those steps because we can't do it alone but with your help we can when I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Amen shall we stand together